At RIV, we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like Him. We are committed to being gospel-focused and motivated while we are biblically holistic and humble. As a church family, we want to be in and in the community while being a place that is multi and next generational. As we reflect Jesus in our words and actions, we are united in and honoring diversity. And in all of this, we will prioritize relational and missional discipleship. As we look to the next generation, we have a loving, selfless, always present, and ever caring example in Jesus. Let's be that in our community. Glad to be here with you guys. Um, So my name is Dan, and I'm on staff here. Um, A few places you might see me around the venue are doing coffee tent on Monday and Wednesday mornings. Um, So if you're out walking campus, stop right uh, outside the Kiva here and get a free cup of coffee. Um, I do the setup and teardown on Sundays. Uh, I lead some Bible groups, and I like doing one-on-ones, just grabbing coffee with you guys um, and talking about whatever we need to talk about. Now, a few things about me um, in my story. At 23, I was arrested, and I had to do community service. For that community service, my sister actually invited me on a mission trip. So I went, I got plugged in with a college ministry, and uh, shortly after that, I became a Christian at 24 years old through that college ministry. Um, I was discipled by a pastor named Brian. And he really started discipling me before I even knew I was being discipled. Um, Through that kind of time, becoming a Christian and being in the college ministry, I decided I wanted to make an impact on young people the way Brian impacted me. So I quit my job, got into ministry. That was eight years ago, and I've been at RIV for the last seven. And the thing is about my walk with the Lord, for the past nine years that I've been a, a Christian, the most important thing for my growth and development has been discipleship. Discipleship is how I heard and was taught about Jesus and the gospel. Whenever I was with Brian, he always looped conversation back to Jesus somehow. Through discipleship, I became a Christian. Discipleship is how I learned to obey Jesus. Discipleship is how I found out what God created me to do with my life, which I believe is college ministry. And discipleship is how I'm up here preaching today. Less than a year ago, if you would have said, Dan, you're giving a message on a Sunday at the MSU venue, I would have said, no way. I I can't talk in front of people. Um, But I've spent time with Young and many of the other pastors who encouraged and challenged me to step up here, and so that's the reason I'm here. Now, through all that, we have to press pause here um, because I've used the word discipleship seven times already. And before we get any further, we need to define discipleship so that we're on the same page moving forward. Because out of maybe a hundred of us in this room here, we could have a hundred different definitions of what discipleship is. Some would be pretty similar, but there would be differences. So at RIV here, we have an official definition, and that is discipleship is the lifelong journey of being changed by, following, and becoming more like Jesus. This messy and grace-driven process happens best through the mutual sharing of our lives 
with the great commandment at its heart and the great commission at its trajectory. So before we get into scripture here, I want to pray um, that the Lord would use this time to um, encourage and challenge us in discipleship. So Heavenly Father, would you encourage and challenge us with what it looks like to model our lives for discipleship after the example of Jesus? May we be a people of action so that we can help transform the world around us through discipleship. Amen. So when it comes to discipleship, we definitely need to go to the Bible um, to see the example that Jesus laid out for us to follow. And I'm going to highlight six things I see um, when uh, we look at Jesus and how he did this discipleship in his ministry. So the first one is, he invited. We need to invite. Mark 1, let me get here. Mark 1, 16 through 20 says this. As he, that's Jesus, passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately, Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So here, Jesus invites these new disciples, and he says, I will make you fish for people. Jesus uses this illustration that Andrew, Peter, James, and John would understand when it comes to doing ministry and discipleship. Using the analogy of fishing, there are some things we need to consider to be successful for fishing for men. Um, I've been fishing a few times, so I know a few of the basics. Um, I will admit, if you find me on Instagram and scroll down a little bit, I have a very cringy picture of me holding a fish up that I caught. Um, it's there. Um, kind of embarrassed by it, but it is what it is. So, um, But to catch a fish... You have to know what type of fish you're trying to catch. You have to know what equipment to use, the depth of the water, and the bait that you're going to use to catch the fish. When we think about fishing for people, each person we're going after is different, right? So what type of fish are we trying to catch? We need to consider, do they have a faith background? Have they been hurt by Christians? What is their experience that leads them closer or further to Jesus? We need to think about the equipment we use. And really, the equipment is the Jesus himself and the gospel. The equipment can't be having a better life. The equipment can't be having um, best friends. It can't be feeling good because you're helping someone less fortunate. The invite needs to be centered on the gospel of Jesus, or else there won't be eternal, lasting fruit for discipleship. We have to consider the bait. What are we going to do? Are we going to invite them to a community night? Are we going to invite them to church? Are we going to invite them to serve or volunteer somewhere? Are we going to do a faith-based book study, a Bible study? Do they need a one-on-one -on -one, um, or group context? For me, when I invite someone into discipleship, I start with what I call a gospel appointment. Um, what I do is I share my testimony, I listen to their story, then I share the gospel, and I ask them, where are you with Jesus? 
from there, I better know how I can best um, help them walk closer to Jesus. I can understand if they're ready for church, if they're ready to read the Bible, if they need one, more one-on-one time, or if they need a group. See, the whole process of fishing for people, prayer is essential. No matter what we do, how we do it, when we do it, God, through the Holy Spirit, is the one who will work to change the other person to either repent, believe, and trust in Jesus, or grow their faith. Now, with what Jesus did, he started by inviting just regular dudes to spend time with him. The disciples were ordinary in every sense of the word, to some even less than ordinary. Um, Sorry, I lost my spot here. Okay, Um, but Jesus didn't go to the religious places to find the most religious people with the best faith resumes. In our culture, we put so much weight into resumes. There's so much pressure to have a resume that's impressive and stands out. And if we're doing the choosing, we look for the most impressive resumes. When it comes to discipleship, we shouldn't put that same weight on someone's faith if they want to be discipled. And also, we shouldn't worry about how good or how bad our resume looks like if we want to be discipled. Discipleship starts from just the way you are um, or where someone else is no matter what. So what does an invite look like? I think it's easier than what we think. Jesus' invite was, follow me, learn from me. Know and understand my mission and message. Only then will you be able to be fishers of men. You can be direct like, hey, so-and-so, Jesus didn't live his life alone. He invited people to learn and follow him. I know a little bit. Maybe I can teach you something. Maybe you can teach me something. Do you want to try to follow Jesus with me? Or like Brian did with me, he was just indirect. He was like, hey, want to grab lunch together? And then he'd turn the conversation towards Jesus. Hey, want to grab coffee? Turns the conversation to Jesus. Now, I have to mention that the reality is, if you invite someone, you may get rejected. But that's okay. Your responsibility is not in the acceptance of the rejection. It's in the invitation. The second thing we do in discipleship is we build community, whether that's a group of two or 2,000. Now take note that I said we build community. We don't find it. Recently, I read a great article um, called The Folly of Looking for Community by Eugene Park of the Sola Network. He said this about community. The problem is the assumption that community is found like stumbling upon a hidden treasure. One cannot find community because it, is something, it isn't something to be discovered. Community is never found, only built. He also mentions that we shouldn't be shoppers of community, but builders, right? So in Acts, we're shown a glimpse of how the early church built community. Acts 2.42, very famous for um, what the, the church should look like. 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The next few verses goes into detail about how that played out and what they exactly did, but it ends with saying that the church exploded. 
People were getting saved and added to the church every single day. So if you're wondering how to build community, this is a very good example to follow. We find people, and together we devote ourselves to learn from the word. Coming to church on a Sunday morning is great. It's a good first step, but it shouldn't stop there. We build fellowship by gathering together around shared interest. And at the very least, we all have a shared interest in Jesus. Whether you're questioning who he is or you've been a Christian your whole life, Jesus can be that common interest. And I think the most beautiful communities are the ones where people are drastically different, but we are bonded together through Jesus. We can eat together. I find it unexplainable um, how eating together and sharing a meal, how amazing that is to develop friendships and build community. We should be intentional with corporate pair, uh, prayer. This is something I think, um, honestly, we could do better at our venue with. Um, yeah, but I would say that when we talk about prayer, um, that worship should be included in that. But once again, Sunday morning worship is a great start, but don't let it um, stop there. I know periodically uh, we have some worship nights in people's homes. That is great. Keep doing that. That's what we should be doing to help build community. So the description here of the early church in Acts is what they did daily. Once again, don't let Sunday morning be where you stop building community. Let that be the launching pad. The third thing we do is we put God first, others second, and then ourselves third. Matthew 22, 36 through 39 this is um, called the Great Commandment, so maybe you're familiar with it. The Pharisees were trying to test Jesus here, and they asked him, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said, Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is your greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus did here is he summarized all the 613 Old Testament laws into a 1A and 1B. Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament hinges on loving God and loving others. For us, we don't follow the rules of the Old Testament law because Jesus fulfilled them. But in the Old Testament, the, dry, uh, the Jews, they would strive to obey the laws. For us, we need to strive to love, which as a result fulfills the law. Romans 13 says, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then it later says, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, what does it take to look, or what does it look like um, to love God? I think one thing we do is we need to prioritize our time to involve Him. Oftentimes, for me, I think I don't have time to fit God into my schedule, but my focus should be. I need to have time for God and then build out my schedule. We all, if we're honest with ourselves, have plenty of wasted time and unimportant things we do that we could flip and make that time for God. Another thing, we obey his commands and how we should live and how he tells us to live. I'll talk about that next. We can humble ourselves before him in prayer and worship. Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer uh, with uh, practicing humility before God. 
He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God is God and we are not. I know for me, I assume, maybe for you too, we need to remember that more often. But in prayer and worship, we can elevate God to his proper position, which is above all things, including ourselves. Another way to love God is to trust him, uh, that he is at work in our lives and the circumstances we are in. Like I said earlier in my story, the lowest point of my life was being um, in handcuffs at jail. I literally thought I had ruined the rest of my life. Um, But in the midst of that, God was using that to bring me slowly back to Jesus and the gospel and salvation. Now, I hope we know that the Christian life isn't all sunshine and rainbows. There are devastating circumstances we find ourselves in. In those moments, it's hard to have any hope for things to get better. I try to find comfort in Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those are according um, to his purpose. And I found in these hard circumstances, God does a lot of behind-the-scenes work in our lives. So believe me that he is at work, even if you can't see it. Trusting God in whatever circumstances we are in um, could be at least another full sermon. So we can't go into too much detail. Um, But if you're going through a difficult time and or discouraged about something, come see me after the service. I'd love to grab coffee with you. Um, I'll be right outside the doors. Um, Another thing we can do to love God is to be generous in our giving because we trust him to provide for what we need. Um, I have found that when I'm generous, I receive a lot of generosity from others. Now, I'm not saying if you give the church a dollar, you'll get $2 back. But if you give faithfully, God will in turn provide back to you what you need and bless you. So what does it look like to love others? We provide for the needs of others. I have a friend who was um, just sad to see, you know, the men and women holding signs that are in need of something on the side of the road. Um, So what she did is she started making care packages. In a little Ziploc bag, she put little um, items that they could use. And when she sees them on the side of the road, she starts passing them out now. That's a little thing of providing the needs of others. There's so many different ways that we can provide for those in need. We can also encourage. I was reading an article recently about a woman that was learning to surf. And uh, her instructor would always praise her for the little victories. The woman said in this blog, Encouragement can provide people with strength to look ahead, move forward, and reach the next goal. The whole emotional tone of a tough situation can be transformed through encouragement. Somehow things seem a little brighter. A sincere compliment, guys, can, no matter how small, can go a long way. And we can do a lot of things to point others to Jesus, and encouraging one another is such a big part of that. And I think it gets often overlooked, at least by me. Another way we love others is putting them before ourselves, just like Jesus said. Now, it's important to have boundaries in that scenario, Um, Just last week, I had to say no to someone that was in need um, because I was on the verge of breaking down with exhaustion. 
Um, I just couldn't do it. So we can only do so much since we're limited. We have to have boundaries. That's the reality. But when the possibility is there, within our capacity, we should put others above ourselves and serve them. I have to give a shout-out to the setup and teardown teams. Um, They really put you before themselves. They come here very early. They stay very late um, each and every Sunday so that we can have this service for everyone. So for you, be on the lookout for ways that you can serve, not only at church, but throughout your week, uh, each and every day. The fourth thing um, that we see from uh, discipleship is that we obey Jesus together. John 8.31 says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. So here, the context is Jesus had just saved a woman that was about to be stoned to death for her sin. And he began to teach things like he was the light of the world and the son of God to the crowd that was around him. And many people believed in him. But here, Jesus addresses them and says, "Um, uh, you have put your faith in me, but that's not a one-time thing. Belief and faith are a process moving forward. He is saying belief continues by the process of continuing in my word. My word is also translated to my message or my teaching. So when we look at what Jesus is saying, he says, continue to obey what I am teaching you. To be a disciple of Jesus and to do discipleship with others is for us to humbly say, Jesus, you are Lord, and I will submit to your ways. This can be very difficult because Jesus says some pretty wild things on how to live um, life by obeying him. One thing he says is turn the other cheek. And for us, that's not defending our personal rights or avenging our honor to somebody that has hurt us. Jesus says, God or money, you can only choose one. I still have trouble with that. I long for money and think, if I only had it, I could do X, Y, and Z. Jesus says, this is a tough one. Don't worry about anything. Seek God instead. At first glance, that kind of seems a little mid. I'm like, what? Jesus can't be serious. But Jesus' point is that worry will bring nothing good to your life and won't produce anything of value. But seeking God that will precede everything we need by him providing for us. Jesus also says, love your enemies. And when I read this for the first time as a Christian, I was really convicted. At the time, I had a horrible relationship with my grandpa, and I hated him. I read, love your enemies, and so I started praying for him and trying to bless him. I figured by doing those things, my grandpa would change. Eventually, a couple months down the road, I realized my heart had changed for my grandpa. I was able to forgive him. We were able to build a beautiful relationship from there on. Now, whatever you want to label a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a believer, a disciple, however you label that term, what makes it that is that it's not a one-moment decision of faith. It's a continual process. And we continue that process through obedience. 
Now I say we obey Jesus together because I found it beneficial to include others in how I am trying to follow Jesus. By including others, they can encourage me. They can keep me accountable. I can model obedience for them, and they can model obedience for me. When obedience happens, the outcome is fruit will be produced. And that's the next point. Number five is there's produced fruit, but not just produced fruit. We need to rejoice over that produced fruit. Like I said before, when Jesus says, remain in me, think of it as, obe- oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to read. Eh. That would help my context. Um, John 15, 5 through 8, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So like I said before, the remaining in me, think of that as obedience. When we obey, fruit is produced. And the fruit from obedience may look different in every situation, but the presence of it is inevitable. Now here's a thing to know, especially if you are someone discipling someone else. Do not put expectations of what fruit they will bear and when on them. God will use uh, work in their lives to help them grow, to help them obey and produce that fruit. Now the type of fruit and what it looks like in our lives, I look to um, Galatians 5. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Doesn't the thought of being in a community where these things are continuously present sound absolutely amazing? Who would want to say no to being a part of a community like that? So the thing with fruit um, that I want to hit on here is fruit as seeds that help it reproduce. And just like real fruit, our spiritual fruit will lead to reproduction. Obedience will produce the love, joy, peace, and etc., which will lead to more obedience, which will lead to more love, joy, peace, and etc. It just goes on building off each other. And all the while this fruit is being produced um, through obedience, God is glorified through it. See, our purpose in life here is to honor, glorify, and praise God because he deserves it. This is why we rejoice over the fruit because it is a way that God is honored, glorified, and praised. Our rejoicing shouldn't be, hey, look what I did, this great thing that impacted somebody. Our rejoicing is that the fruit is produced, and that points an arrow from the broken world to God. The last thing I want to highlight for what discipleship looks like is we proclaim the gospel to others. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is the uh, great commandment. Last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. So Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now here, Jesus doesn't say, therefore, wait until people come to church or directly ask me or directly ask you about me to tell them the gospel. I don't want to sound too harsh, but too often that becomes um, the posture of Christians, myself included. To me, I have very little fear of being one to prompt a convo about the gospel with a student. But when it comes to friends and family, it's a whole different story. Too often, my posture is basically, they know I work for a church. They'll ask me about it sometime, and then I can talk about Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say wait. He says go. There's so much to unpack with just this little word. But what I want to unpack is, I think what's behind that go word is urgency. We have to be urgent to share the gospel. What we do is we share the message that we live in a broken world. God didn't design it that way, but we as humans chose sin, ushered in brokenness and death. We are in this brokenness and we think this can't be the way things should be. So we look for ways to escape, but nothing is everlasting. We always get snapped back into the brokenness. But God's not okay with us being stuck in the brokenness. So what he did is he sent Jesus, his son, who is fully God and fully man, into the world. And Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I can't live so that he could be a perfect sacrifice on the cross to take our sin and death and take our shame from us. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And that's what we get to celebrate next week. And if we, play, if we repent, place our belief and trust in Jesus, we can have new life on this earth, an everlasting life with God in heaven. That's the gospel we need to proclaim. Something that we have to keep in mind about um, how the disciples went and fulfilled this great commission is that they believed Jesus was coming back soon, like real soon, like it could be tomorrow. They had that urgency. They didn't have time to wait or have any passivity. That couldn't be an option. If we don't, if, I'm sorry, if you don't have the urgency in your heart to share the gospel, and oftentimes I'm right here, there's an easy step to take to get that urgency, and it's to pray. God, help place it on my heart to share the gospel. Help me to desire it. Help me to care for this person um, to share the gospel. Those simple prayers, God will definitely answer those because his heart is to save people and we are the means by which he does that. I had an event that kind of shook me and gave me a little better perspective on urgency. Um, I had a great aunt who had cancer, and she got moved to hospice. And um, I knew she went to church, but I didn't know if she was really a Christian. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go talk to her about Jesus and see where she's at. But I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow came. I said, I'll do it tomorrow. And the next day came, and I found out she had passed away in the middle of the night. 
I was at the funeral, and, uh, you know, everybody was saying, oh, she's in a better place. She's in heaven with Jesus. And I was sitting there, and I was like, I don't really know if she is. And that kind of wrecked me to my core. So please learn from me. Don't wait. If we wait, the opportunity might not come, and then what? I experienced the then what, and it's not a place you want to be. This last interaction that Jesus has with his his disciples is he gives them direction for what to do next. This direction is not for just the 11 disciples. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for missionaries. It's not just for people with the gift of evangelism, which let me highlight, there are some of you sitting here right now with the gift of evangelism and you don't know it. For me, when I became a Christian, I was so excited, like, let's go, what do I do? Someone said, take a spiritual gifts test. So I did. Evangelism was my lowest score. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm not doing evangelism. And uh, so I lived that way for a couple years, came to MSU, started working with Aaron Wentz. And Aaron Wentz is, he's an awesome evangelist. He came from Boston, street preaching, subway preaching, going to Yale and Harvard, preaching in the um, center of campus. He was just all about preaching the gospel. And he took me under his wing. He taught me some tricks, taught me how to do things, how to have conversations. Then he took me with him to do it. And then he had me do it. And through that process, over the last couple years, I'm like, I actually have the gift of evangelism. But it was through that practice um, and me being taught how to do it is how I cultivated that gift. So this direction is for each and every person who say they are a Christian to go make disciples. Now for me, I was thinking about the excuses that I either had or have when it comes to sharing the gospel. And I'm not trying to point these out to shame any one of you because this was my list. But if you connect with it, we're in the same boat. We're in it together. But I think it's important that we need to challenge ourselves to stop accepting these excuses. So I used to tell myself, I don't know how. But I had to be taught. And if this is you, come find me and I'll teach you. Aaron teaching me, me teaching you, that's discipleship. I used to tell myself, I don't know enough about Jesus. If you, decided, if you have decided that you have repented, believed, and trusted in Jesus, you know enough. Believing the gospel is enough to know. I'm scared I won't be able to answer their questions, I often thought. But it's okay not to have all the answers. You'll never be prepared enough to answer every question that someone has. When a question comes my way that I don't know, I often say, you know, I don't know, but let's find out together. Let's search for the answer together. Sometimes I tell myself, they're not ready to hear about Jesus. The thing is, we cannot make that decision on someone else's behalf. Now, maybe there is someone you know that is incredibly hostile towards Jesus for whatever reason, and they just the convo can't happen about Jesus 
but that really is a rarity. In all the convos I've had in ministry and personal life with people, I've really yet to have um, a situation where the other person wasn't open to at least talking somewhat about Jesus. Like I said with my um, story, my great aunt, um, I still think this today, but I'll do it later, or I'm waiting for them to ask me. Like I said before, what if that later, that prompting never happens? Then what? See, by this last uh, point here of us going to proclaim the gospel, I hope that you grasp that evangelism is at the core of discipleship. If we are not discipling non-Christians, then we are just making Christians more Christian. And that's not what Jesus' plan for discipleship was. I'm standing here giving this sermon because Brian obeyed God to go to a broken, hurting, and confused kid to share Jesus with him. I'm here because Young took me under his wing to help me learn how to preach. I want to close with considering some things that I've talked about. So I want you to think um, about the questions that I have here. Just simply, what is your next step for, event, or, uh, for discipleship? Do you need to invite someone? Do you need to build community? Do you need to work on putting God first, others second, yourself third? Do you need to obey Jesus with others? Do you need to rejoice at the produced fruit that you see in your life or someone else's life? Do you need to go and proclaim the gospel? Think about just one of those things, one step that you can take. Now, I do like to dream. I'm kind of a dreamer. I like to think about the future and the what-ifs, you know, what could happen. So I thought we could end our time by dreaming for a moment. What do you think will happen at this venue if we put into practice these steps with one another? What will the venue look like? How could it change your life? How could it change someone else's? Now, the thing about dreaming that I have to remind myself is I can think all of these great things that might happen in the future, but honestly, we don't know what God will do. But I found more often than not, I can't outdream God for the work that He accomplishes in my life, in uh, my friends' and family's lives and in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Jesus that we can follow. Would you give us courage to take the steps we need so that we can grow to be more like Jesus and help others do the same. May we be a community known for transforming the world around us. Amen. It's hard to put into words the magnitude of feeling like I had a family who cared about me for who I was and who was fighting for me spiritually and emotionally. We started coming to our house because the dorms didn't serve um, Sunday dinner. Mm -hmm. And so we had Sunday dinner at our house with, I don't know, 10 to 40 people. <laughs> we had five 
little kids. You would come into the middle of the chaos. I'd stand on one side of the bed, you'd stand on the other. We folded loads and loads of laundry or just did whatever had to be done while talking because I couldn't, you know, put my kids in a room by themselves. That taught me so much, coming over and listening to you and how you parented has truly changed my life and how I parent, my relationship with my husband, my relationship with the Lord. That was a treasure. For me too. Me too. (laughs) And then, yeah, and then Anne-Marie lived with us. Yeah. You would always just open up the floor to just like talk and get to know me, you know? It was was so easy to like- That's great. Be friends and and disciple each other, Mm -hmm. you know? I was able to see the fruit of Jesus through you, of being like, it's okay to be honest and it's okay to be real and authentic and people won't get mad at you or tell you that like your feelings aren't valid. Like you care and you love me and you want me to be honest. It was always like, I accept you and I love you first, which I think is exactly what Jesus does to us. Yeah. I love you and I accept you and I understand you're sinful and I still want you and I still want to know you and care about you and love you. So you have like this authenticity that you allow other people to bring to you to then change the relationship to be really fruitful and truthful and, and growing together because that's, what, that's who you are. That's who, that's who God has made you, you know? is this authentic person that just loves him so much that wants other people to feel loved by him. It takes the pressure off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) For it to be, um, for you to see the Lord and what he's done and how he's changed our lives. And so then you can go and share that with others. And since the example is Jesus, then it's okay to make mistakes in front of one another. You know, we can change together too and then you know, Jesus covers all. All multitude of sins, yeah. So indeed it is stumbling. <laughs> That's a relationship, is stepping out on a branch that you think might crack. That's friendship is being vulnerable and putting yourself out there. God made us to be in community together, to share our lives, the good and the bad. It's the, right, the suffering that you go through this so that you can teach someone else. Learning from those mistakes, sharing my ugly, Anita, you would pour wisdom into that and turn it around and I'd be able to see God in that ugly and see him working for the good in it. And I feel like I learned the same things. Like I was able to see how you did your real authentic life. You invited me into that. And so like I could see how you pursued Jesus to be more like him through you. Yeah, it's so, clear to me that we can't do it alone Mm -hmm. because it's those moments that are so that have locked into my brain with community and with family that are so encouraging being able to talk with other people about the bible and dive in um hear your thoughts and the different what you get from different verses that gets me excited and i can't do that without you guys i can't do that without community I really feel like you should, you know, have somebody older than you, someone your age, and then be pouring into someone who's younger. You would come over and I'd be so excited saying, look, you taught me all these things and look, I get to do them with Anne-Marie. And then you would say, right, because someone taught me. I lived with another family. 
that is incredible to me that it's just the same generation after generation passing this on because it was so new to me in college. It was brand new to see a family focus solely on the word and then loving God and loving others. You saw that from Anita, but then I saw that from you. It is the learning back because you would encourage me so much. It is like that full circle of like, you know, we learn and then we share. Mm-hmm.